This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Quaker author and educator Parker Palmer. I spoke with him on November 25th, 2008, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of Wisconsin Public Radio in Madison, Wisconsin. This interview is included in our program, Repossessing Virtue, Parker Palmer on Economic Crisis, Morality, and Meaning, which was originally broadcast in December 2008. Download the MP3 of that produced show at speakingoffaith.org. I mean, I've been climbing, hiking mountain trails at 8,510,000 feet out in New Mexico and doing all kind of paddling in the boundary waters and doing all kinds of good stuff. So okay. I'm... I'm back. I'm okay. tanned, ready, and rested. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> and you, how are you? I'm pretty well. I'm, uh, you know, I juggle a lot, and sometimes I get kind of depleted, and I am right now, because I have I two understand. children, and um, big job, and I've traveled a little bit too much lately, so my yeah, my I challenge understand. is to try to get balance, and that's what I strive for, but I don't always succeed. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I know that story. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's not a very unusual story. Um, so I think Mitch is saying that we can go. Um, uh, it's great to talk to you. Great to to be able to do this again. Yeah. Um, I thought I, I would like to start in a little more personal place before we move out to the bigger picture. And just um, I wonder... Um, as you have been personally experiencing, you know, what's happening in our culture economically, um, I wonder if you might reflect on experiences in your life that you've been drawing on as you make sense of this. What's What's been in your on your mind? Um, you know, even pieces of your upbringing or... Yeah. Well, that's a really interesting question that I hadn't quite thought about before. <laughs> but as usual, you you ask the challenging question that makes me think anew, and I'm glad to do it. Mm. Um, well, I, I've thought a lot, in, in fact, over the years about my upbringing. Um, I grew up in a very affluent, uh, all-white, upper-middle-class suburb of Chicago on the North Shore, mm. Uh but my dad had grown up in a blue-collar family in Waterloo, Iowa. He came to Chicago at age 19 uh, to to get a certificate. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> do you have some water there? Yeah, I do. Okay. I also yeah. have a little frog in my okay. throat. Okay, well, that's fine. Little. As you know, we can digitally edit out. Any yeah. imperfections. <clears throat> Including conceptual, I hope. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, well, he had grown up in a blue-collar family in, in, in Iowa and came to Chicago at age 19 to get a, a certificate in accounting. He, he never went to college. And he raised my two sisters and me as if we had we, we were somehow a blue-collar family who had landed accidentally in this a very well-off suburb, and that had very, very practical implications. Um, it was as if we had parachuted in from some other planet, 
and just happened to land in this place. When I was 12 years old, Dad announced that um, this would be the last summer we would take a family vacation because when Park, as I was called, turned 13 (laughs) and my sisters in turn, um, we would need to go to work for the whole summer. And we would need to save our money. And we would need to learn some values. And by the way, no, we weren't going to join the country club where all of our friends were lounging at the pool and their fathers were playing golf. In fact, Park would be caddying for their fathers (laughs) (laughs) uh, rather than um, enjoying the perks of of that life. So um, there there were a lot of features like that to my upbringing uh, under at the hands of a father who had been very much shaped by the Great Depression and also by uh, those the, the values of, of a family um, in which the breadwinner was a, a machine tool operator who made parts for John Deere tractors and one of the most grounded and solid wise people I've ever I've ever met my grandfather Palmer. Hmm. Um, so people asked me in later years, um, didn't you feel deprived? And I said, on the contrary, I felt like a grown-up at an early age. I felt responsible, mature, uh, that kind of formation really, and that's what it was. It was a kind of spiritual formation, gave me eyes to see the emptiness of materialism and of affluence and I felt um, larger as a result of some of the the loving demands that my father placed on my life, which translated into into material terms. And I and I think that that led me to to fast forward for a moment um, after I got my Ph.D. at Berkeley uh, and uh, was married with three children hmm. um, and was offered. Um, jobs on that would have carried me up the academic ladder in a reasonably lucrative way at a few uh, major institutions, I decided instead to become a community organizer in Washington, D.C. This was the end of the 60s, right. and I had been deeply gripped and moved by the so-called urban crisis of the time, the racial conflagration, the burning of the cities. The, all the questions of uh, social and economic justice that were alive in those days. And b- becoming a community organizer meant uh, finding my own way financially, raising my own salary okay. uh, a few months at a time because there weren't existing slots for that kind of work. I did that for five years and and started realizing even then that my father had given me a kind of economic freedom or a hmm. mentality that hmm. that was capable of dealing with um, with something other than the conventional economic ladder of success. You yeah. know, in 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 those days, um, the saying was that a man, and this was usually thought of in terms of men at that time, a man should be making his age. So if you're 30, you need to be making $30,000. Really? And I wasn't, (laughs) not by a long shot. $30,000 being a lot more money then than it is now. Yeah, and this was 1969 to 74 when I was in D.C. And then one more step forward that has always, uh, that really kind of cemented this, um, this mindset for me of, 
I suppose, economic freedom is what you'd call it. Um, and mind you, I was not doing this on the basis of a trust fund or anything like that because my father gave away a great deal of his money and uh, didn't oversupply us with financial gifts or make any promissory notes about the future. He trusted by the time we came of age, my sisters and I, that we could paddle our own canoe, and that's what we proceeded to do. So when I left D.C. after five years of community organizing, I went to Pendle Hill, the Quaker Living Learning Community, where I spent 11 years, uh, much of it as dean of studies, and at that time, Pendle Hill had a flat uh, salary scale. It wasn't a scale at all. It didn't matter if you were dean of studies with a Ph.D. from Berkeley, 35 years old with three kids, or an 18-year-old who showed up to cook in the kitchen. We all made $2,400 a year plus room and board. (laughs) And uh, I translated that uh, some months ago into today's dollars that is about $10,000 a year. I don't think that many Berkeley PhDs today are looking for that sort of salary. But to to me, it was... um, it was a, a, a liberation um, to have been um, not only raised with with those kinds of values around money, but but also to have found a, a community where where sharing um, was was very real, where living a little lower on the food chain was something we could do because we ate our meals together. Mm. We ate largely vegetarian meals. Um, I developed many what Bob Bella would call habits of the heart during that time that were very challenging, very very countercultural in terms of what people of my background and my age and my education were, were quote, supposed to be doing. Mm. And and I'm not saying that I did all of that without struggle. There was terrific struggle involved, and I often wondered what in heaven's name I was doing. <laughs> but as I've often said, there was a calling there, and what what animated it more than anything else, I realize, looking back, is that I couldn't not do it. Okay. And a, a kind of combination of factors uh, led me into... Um, a a long period of spiritual formation that helped me do, I think, a more creative dance between money, uh, possessions, financial security, and um, calling, compelling vocation in one's life, a more creative dance between those elements than um, I might otherwise have have been capable of. You know... um you and I have spoken before about your experience of depression, which came in midlife. And um, I have to tell you something interesting as this economic crisis has unfolded. Mm-hmm. Um, without even remembering that it was you who said this or the context of the conversation, <laughs> you know, we've had these period, these days and days where the stock market continues to fall and continues to fall, and the experts express such shock, <clears throat> right? Mm-hmm. Even, and, right. I, and I will say right here that I don't understand much of this, which I don't think makes me that different from most of the people hearing the news, but <laughs> somehow it hasn't seemed um, counterintuitive that it continued to fall because it 
you know, one thing I do know is that it was at such an artificially elevated level. Mm-hmm. And I, what I kept thinking of was actually my conversation with you and you talking about how um, in the middle of a depression, a psychological depression, uh, you had a therapist who said, uh, Parker, could you think of your depression as a friend, which is bringing you down to earth, mm-hmm. ground on which it is safe to walk? Mm-hmm. And 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 I uh, to me that has felt that was a useful analogy to think about the con- numbers that continue to fall, but you know somehow assuming trusting that they're going to fall to a level on which it is safer to walk. <laughs> well, uh, that's a that's a wonderful connection, uh, in, and in fact, I have had some of those same thoughts, mm-hmm. Krista. Uh, some the, the parallels between psychological depression and economic depression, rightly understood. Um, yes, I, I've written and spoken with you about the fact that um, I, I finally learned through the, with the help of this therapist that depression didn't need to be pictured as the hand of an enemy trying to crush me, but rather the hand of a friend trying to press me down to, to ground on, on which it was safe to stand and and through that realization i um i understood that part of what took me into depression was that i was living life at artificial heights at uh, untenable elevations so that the um the elevation involving a kind of um, uh, inflated ego or a free floating spirituality or uh, a detached sense of oughts and, and, uh, and in that sense, a, a false ethic, um, or simply living uh, intellectually in my head more than in my feelings and in my body, that all of those things put you at such altitude that if you trip and fall, which you're inevitably going to do, right. you have a long, long way to fall, and it might kill you. But if you are, in fact, on ground where it's safe to stand, you can fall and and get up and fall and get up again, which most of us do every day. And yes, I I do feel that um, that it's that 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 we all knew on, at some level, uh, if we took a moment to think about it, that um, there was a huge amount of of artificial altitude, elevation, inflation in this society, that housing prices were ridiculous, that stock prices were way beyond value. And we now know, in fact, that um, a lot of that was a purposely contrived illusion, mm-hmm. uh, just as the factors that bring people <laughs> into But in into which depression. we all happily colluded, because they were we all many of them colluded. pleasant illusions. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, I spoke uh, at a recent retreat I did with the CEO of a very, very large publicly traded firm. This was on the day after uh, Wall Street, the Dow Jones, first fell to its its new all-time low a year to the day uh, after it set its all-time high. Right, right. And I said, help me, help me understand what's happening here. And I think this is a very interesting parallel. Um, he said, among other things, all of the markets in which the U.S. Uh, operates uh, primarily are what he called mature markets. 
He says, 25 years ago, they were not mature markets. They were markets in which real growth was possible. And during that 25-year period, stockholders became accustomed to um, rising, rapidly rising uh, rates of return, and they kept demanding that despite the fact that these markets were maturing to a place where no more growth is possible. Um, I know what that means. I'm almost 70 years old, and I'm starting to shrink. I'm, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I, I'm not growing anymore. Um, but he said when, when shareholders continue to demand the same kind of growth in a mature market uh, that they experienced before it matured, there are only two possible ways to create the illusion of growth. One is to cook the books. That's the Enron answer. And the other is to gobble up uh, some portion of a competitor's market, claim it for a while, telling your stockholders that this is real growth, knowing all the while that sooner or later another competitor is going to gobble it back up from you. So it, you, you create the illusion of growth by, in effect, sort of eating your young and those were among the market illusions that all of us bought into uh, because because why? Um, because um, we enjoy feeling fat and happy even if we really aren't uh, because of the same reasons, I guess, that I allowed myself to get so inflated in various ways that a fall was inevitable. You know, just a second, yes? Okay. Um, apparently, the engineer is going to come in and make an adjustment on your mic. Um, sounding fine to me, but they know what they're doing. Yes. He's coming in right now. Okay. Excuse me. He's he's putting he's putting a little baffle in front of it. Okay. Sounds like you do something I do, which is pee popping. It's a sin, an audio it's a, sin. It's a radio sin. Yep. <laughs> well, usually I'm the one who does the baffling, but here he's doing it <laughs> mechanically. Relieve me of the responsibility, I guess. You got a small piece of tape. I'll be right back. Yeah, he needs to jerry-rig this thing a little further. Okay. And a Rube Goldberg contraption. Yeah, tape. See. That's, right. that's what happens when technology fails. You go back to those time-honored traditions. Yeah, just like we have we, to do in today's. I know we've got this <laughs> these brand new state-of-the-art studios and the you know the fanciest studio of all. There's there's no sign that works outside that says that you're on air. So we have to write <laughs> it on a piece of paper and we flip it up and down. <laughs> and every time we do that, I I think it's funny and ironic. That's fantastic. Good reminder of limitations. Amen. <laughs> All right. We're now baffled okay. and back All in right. business. Okay. But he, I guess he's just returning to his studio, so okay. his cubby hole. All right. It's dug out. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I want to come back um, and dwell for a minute on your idea that we we all knew <laughs> that we knew because and you're using that that word I want to emphasize that word because one of the things you've been writing about is 
you know, you know, ways of knowing that we um, haven't taken seriously enough. And I just I want to read um, a little bit from a from an essay you wrote recently. Um, you know, most um, about the did you say about the economic terrors that now engulf America at some level. Most of us knew they were coming. Who doesn't know that a society in which the rich get richer while the poor get poorer is a society that will someday have to pay the piper? Who doesn't know that when a relatively small fraction of the world's population uses its power to command and consume a disproportionately large fraction of the world's resources, the chickens will come home to roost? You ask some more of those you know, who who doesn't know <clears throat> that at every level of life, from personal to global to cosmic, what goes around comes around. And then you conclude, the problem is not that we don't possess a capacity to know these things. If we didn't, we wouldn't have all the colloquial, colloquialisms I just used. The problem is that the knowledge we need, like the seismic shifts that create eruptions, originates underground. It comes from a place within us deeper than our intellects. Um. I think, uh, on the one hand, what you're saying is is really just common sense, you know. When you say, "But look, we," you know, and, and I said to you a minute ago, "As we, you know, I don't understand half of what's happening, right?" But the truth is, I knew, <laughs> right? right? I knew. And when you say, "We all knew that it couldn't last forever," but talk to me about why we, uh, you know, your analysis of how. We suspend suspend that kind of knowledge, um, and and in particular, how we have suspended it um, in, in this particular crisis that is now going to be pretty all encompassing. And you know, you you as you mentioned, you you had a pretty um, serious uh, few days of conversation right as the stock market began to fall, including with some people who were working at those very high realms of business and financial services. And so, you know, is this a conversation you had with them? And what what are you hearing uh, from them and from the other people you're in conversation with? Right. Well, let's let's walk around and explore and into Mm -hmm. those questions um, in in various ways. Um, First of all, it, it seems to me that one of the commonest features of human life is what I sometimes call secrets hidden in plain sight, Um, things we know but don't want to know and thus find systematic uh, ways of evading or ignoring or denying. And I suppose the fundamental answer as to why we do that is that if we knew these things, we would have to change our lives, and (laughs) we don't want to change our lives. It's true, again, on both the personal and the social level. Um, My experience of psychological depression, which was largely, in my case, situational depression, required me to change my life in some challenging and painful ways. I didn't want to do that until the pain got so great that I either had to do that or die. And the same is true, I think, um, on a a societal level, on an institutional level level. Um, change is, is, is painful. And we don't want to know what we know because it would take us right up to the edge of change. And a lot of 
this kind of knowledge is, in fact, I think, secrets hidden in plain sight. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a quick example from another realm. One of the breakthrough studies recently done in what uh, makes schools successful on behalf of kids is a factor they call relational trust. They found that if a building is full of people who trust each other, um, you're going to get great outcomes for kids, even if uh, that that school is unfairly deprived of the resources it needs. Because mm. if people trust each other, they will come into community, they will generate abundance, they will love the kids and love each other, and good education will emerge. If a building is full of people who don't trust each other, you can throw a lot of money at them, state-of-the-art curriculum and teaching technique, and not much good will come out the other end. Well, this is a breakthrough study done by two scholars <laughs> from a notable university, yeah. and you have to say, well, duh, right, right. who doesn't know that? Right. Well, we, we don't know it collectively because trust building is hard to do. It requires an investment of the heart. Another kind it's of investment. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to go out and get a try to get a grant or beg the feds for more money or bring in the latest dog and pony show from the curricular experts. Mm -hmm. um, a lot easier to do that because it's all arm's length stuff. But when we're challenged to invest ourselves, um, we 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 shy away from 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 that challenge because it means taking risks it means making ourselves vulnerable it means trying to speak the truth it means a whole lot of things that we don't want to do and ultimately we know uh, to quote that a great poem or the conclusion of a great poem by Rainer Maria Rilke where he says there is no place at all that is not looking at you, you must change your life. And, and so, you know, we're being, we're being looked at, we're being seen into by these great and fundamental forces mm. that um, challenge us to, to change. And those forces are forces of the heart. They're forces that involve um, us coming uh, closer to our own reality and closer to our responsibility for for one another. Obviously, the same thing applies in, in this economic situation. Right. I, I actually, because of my experience at Pendle Hill, where uh, for 11 years I lived in a community of genuine sharing and of economic equity, and I experienced the power, the transformative power of that, um, I actually see an opportunity in this economic crisis for people to become more mutually resourceful right. uh, one with another, uh, b partly because we have to. I mean, the Great Depression was a time of, 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 of the arising of various creative communal experiments. Right. It's, no accident, it's no accident that Pendle Hill itself began in 1930 um, and persists to this day. Um, in in an evolved form, but nonetheless, the communal experience is available there. You know, um, something that struck me as so ironic, and it's really coming back to me as I listen to you. I mean, when you talk about investments like uh, 
knowing ourselves, like in uh, investing in relationship, trust, what is communal. Um, I, I think, and this is something that you and I have spoken about before. This is something you've written about all your life. That you know those words don't settle very well in our culture. They can easily sound squishy and abstract and touchy feely, and not as real as something like economics, as facts and logic. But I think one of the great ironies, or again, you know, to use the phrase used a moment ago, one of the great secrets hidden in plain sight of what's happening now in the economy is, you know, the the economic concepts and theories, the fact, what it was presented as fact and logic was as fanciful as, you know, far more fanciful than Narnia, uh, or any, any, right, any kind of, I mean, we, we have been dealing in a, in a world of illogic and, um, illusion presented as fact and logic. Um, and I wonder if, if, if we take that seriously, if some of these concepts that you're talking about of the heart and of community, um, of trust, of relational trust, can we begin to see some of those things as more? Real. <laughs> well, I, I, yes, I, I think I think that that's absolutely an opportunity here, and and let's probe a little bit on that one because the astonishing fact is that we have a lot of facts backing up the reality and power of the emotional, the intuitive, the non-rational, as well as those objective empirical factors that we also depend on, that we, we, we that we're so dependent upon, or that we constantly turn to. Again. When we think about improving a school on behalf of kids, we always think about throwing more money at it or importing a better curriculum or new teaching techniques. We never think about building relational trust. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that the most successful schools do, in, in fact, just that. And they have leaders who are willing to be perceived as mushy and touchy-feely who are willing to take the risk of focusing on things like relational trust because they know that that's what works. They know that that's what makes the human enterprise work. Let me give you a classic example. One of the last places, and this has a lot to do with with our whole conception of what's factual, what's real, and what's powerful. Mm -hmm. One of the last places where you're going to find uh, an honoring of the emotive, the intuitive, the irrational, is on the campus of a Class A research university in this country. <laughs> right. Would you agree with that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, now, the reason given is that this is an institution that um, is based entirely on what's provable. They want the facts before they're willing to go anywhere or do anything, or so they claim. But here's the ironic fact. Mm -hmm. We have at least 50 years of very solid pedagogical research showing that if you don't take the student's emotions seriously, especially an emotion like fear, you shut down the student's capacity to think. And any any first-year brain researcher will tell you that fear paralyzes cognition. We have a test case of this in a 40-year history 
that 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 uh, involves the fact that 40 years ago, females, girls, and young women were failing miserably at math, and the the going explanation at the time was that women's brains are not so structured as to make computation possible. Um, Along came a woman named Sheila Tobias, who said, folks, this is a no-brainer. This has nothing to do with how the female brain is structured. It has everything to do with the fact that girls are told from a very young age that girls can't do math or science. And so they walk into math and science classrooms paralyzed by fear and unable to succeed at the work. Tobias said, I'm going to create a generation of pedagogues, math teachers, who take emotions as seriously as they take intellect. And 40, 50 years later, women are now uh, succeeding at math at rates that equal and often outstrip men. And if you want the proof of the pudding, go into any high-tech company today, observe the number of women who are doing well-paid work that requires high levels of functioning in mathematics, and then ask yourself, is touchy-feely a phrase that should be eliminated from the English language? Hmm. Um, I believe it is, and in fact, I'm on a lifelong crusade to do exactly that. It's the one thing I want to accomplish before I well, die. Where, where, does, where do you think about this? Uh, what you know um, about emotion uh, in this realm? How, how does that apply to how you watch uh, what might be called the decline of corporate culture or the culture of greed, you know, however you want to define it, um, the mess we've gotten ourselves into economically and our, our, our work life. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, you know, the emotional component uh, in any workplace um, is very real and very powerful and often works to our disadvantage. Let me let me give this example from corporate life and, mm-hmm. and the world of high finance and indeed the world of government itself. Um, there are a lot of people uh, working those t- territories who knew not just instinctively but factually what was going on. There were people who actually understood um, the mathematics behind um, these mortgages, these bogus mortgages, Mm -hmm. subprime mortgages. Um, What was it that kept those people from saying the emperor has no clothes? Well, I can name at least two emotions. One is fear uh, of what happens to whistleblowers in our institutions and our society, which is that they get marginalized at 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 uh, at least, and they lose their jobs, and and all future opportunities in that line of work right. at worst. Um, and, and the other emotion, of course, is the emotion called called greed, which is that 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 somehow I have not only a right but an absolute need to claim more than my share out of this, and if someone else suffers, um, I really don't give a hoot let the devil take the hindmost now those are those are those have to do with the inner dynamics of a person's life mm-hmm. and it it truly baffles me as to why um in this society 
we continue to think that all reality and all power in terms of what drives human affairs lies in these external objective factors like policy and institutional arrangement and money, mm-hmm. when in fact there is an equally real and powerful set of drivers of human history that um, reside within us in, in the dynamics of the human heart, uh, which to me is not a vague and abstract phrase or, or a sentimental phrase or mere metaphor. It's actually something that you can work with, that you can discipline, that you can form, that you can focus, and you can deploy to good or bad effect in in the world. In many spheres. You, you, you talk about... The inner world, <clears throat> the inner world as a source of reality and power. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very interested in how you look at uh, figures in history and in culture, and one of them is Václav Havel. You know, you quote from um, some remarks he made as he became president of Czechoslovakia. Uh, having come through, you know, probably the most important historical change of societies that we've seen in our lifetime. And he said, we too can all, he's speaking to the West, we too can offer something to you. The specific experience I'm talking about has given me one certainty. Consciousness precedes being and not the other way around, as Marxists claim. He was talking about this total emphasis on material good um, that was at the heart of Marxism, uh, materialism, and and which inner life um, was not taken seriously at all. And you point out, and again, this is one of those secrets hidden in plain sight, perhaps, that in our culture, in in the capitalist West, um, well, in capitalism, um, we also, we don't, we also value... um, materials, in some ways, in a much more crass way over the inner life. Absolutely. I I think the Marxists have nothing on us when it comes to commitment to materialism. Um, It's it's reflected certainly in our, again, in our higher education, where most of the training is in the skills and knowledges necessary to manipulate the objective external world. Uh, the world of money, the world of structures, the world of policy dynamics, and so forth. And hardly any attention is paid to exploring and and uh, mastering, to the extent one can, one's inner life. This, again, baffles me because one of the taproots of higher education is a guy named Socrates who said the unexamined life is not worth living. Right. And yet, that's exactly what we prepare to d- people to do, to, to, to live unexamined inner lives. And sadly, these same people are given the tools of great power over the external world. Um, and if you use those tools uh, uh, without understanding the inner drivers of your own actions, um, you're going to do great damage. Um, I've I've said in the last few years, now that I am of age, to add a footnote to Socrates, um, I've said, if you do choose to live an unexamined life, please do not take a job that involves other people, because you're going to hurt somebody in in the process. Um, And I think we can see around us right now 
um, the fact that that um, people who have that external power without any inner uh, awareness, thoughtfulness, capacity to explore the dynamics of their own hearts and to check and correct them um, have, in fact, uh, led us uh, into this kind of crisis. So Václav Havel is, uh, I think, a brilliant example of someone who, who, who moved from the pain of his own inner life mm-hmm. um, into uh, the, a, a, a development um, and an elaboration of, of political power that had the amazing result of the so-called Velvet Revolution. Right. Let let me just remind, <clears throat> uh, let me just remind all of us of, of part of the root system of the Velvet Revolution. Ten years before uh, communism collapsed in Czechoslovakia, Václav Havel, out of the pain of his own divided life. Um, a, a life that was lived on the outside in conformity to the rules of the communist regime and on the inside was was yearning uh, for freedom, for truth, for justice. Um, he wrote an open letter to Gustav Husak, the head of the Communist Party yeah. in Czechoslovakia. And he said, in effect, um, I'm going public with the fact that I'm just not going to take this anymore. This regime is inhuman, it's it's cruel, and I am no longer going to collaborate with with my, even with my silence uh, in in the evil that has overcome the the culture and the society that I love. Well, he was he was put under house arrest, but that letter circulated as the underground Bible. Of, of of small movement groups who found in that letter their own story, Pe- people finding in Havel's story confirmation for their story, and, and it's a story of, of the heart. It's a story of a wounded heart. Havel was asked in later years, um, did you write that, le- that letter, that open letter, to, to start the movement uh, that brought communism down in Czechoslovakia. And he said a very compelling thing. He said, no, he said, I wrote that letter as an act of autotherapy to keep from committing suicide. Hmm. He said it was either express my inner truth in an outer way, hmm. the, the truth of my heart in the midst of a very hard and oppressive political system, or take myself out. There was no longer... A choice. Now, I'd like to do one more thing with this stream of thought, Krista, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to fast forward it to our own recent right. presidential election. Um, I thought that the the political dynamics of the last couple of years were absolutely fascinating and absolutely illumined by the frame that you and I are now exploring. And, and, and here's the, the story as I would tell it. Um, Barack Obama starts out uh, this process as a virtual unknown. He's castigated for being uh, a good speechmaker but an irrelevant idealist. Hmm. He hasn't had any practical experience, just 
being a community organizer, what does that add up to? Um, Two years later, he captures for the first time in 60 years as a Democrat uh, more than 50% of the vote. He, um, uh, He helps create an extraordinarily high voting rate. He brings into uh, the voting process, into the democratic process, uh, Hispanics, African Americans, young people who to this point had felt that they weren't citizens because they had nothing to vote for, uh, nothing that represented them. And he brought with, uh, along with them, obviously, a lot of other folks who are not African-American, who are not Hispanic, and who are not young. Um, It's a remarkable political achievement, and I would point to two factors that I think um, helped uh, him carry the day. One is people's perception that he is a thoughtful person with a quiet center who is actually capable of an inner journey. Mm-hmm. He's written two books about his own journey, and and much of that uh, of that writing is, is about his inner struggle, his perceptions, his framing and reframing of the world around him. And much of it is about uh, opening himself to dialogues with difference, uh, to dialogues across uh, lines of division, which in itself requires a, a receptive, open, and thoughtful inner life. So we we perceived in him, and I'm really not trying to make a political statement here so much as a kind of meta-analysis right. of, of what happened. We perceived in him um, the kind of um, cultivated inwardness um, that, that we need at this time in addition to, alongside, joined with, the outward skills that, in fact, a community organizer possesses. Then the second thing I want to point to uh, by way of helping understand, that helps me understand the success of this campaign is something that I haven't seen a lot of writing about. But it's it's a thing called Camp Obama that started uh, at least two years ago, maybe a little more, uh, that was the root system of this vast uh, volunteer grassroots organization that helped Obama get elected. Camp Obama was held in different regions of the country. It was created around the thinking of a, of a Harvard professor named Marshall Gans, himself uh, someone with the sensibilities of a community organizer, People were brought together in regions. The the original, the starter dough, I guess you might call it, for the campaign, the original seed planters. And they sat down in circles, and they were invited, first of all, to listen to Obama's, uh, one of Obama's uh, speeches, in which he does three things. He tells the story of self, the story of us, and the story of now, linking them all together. And after watching that speech, these uh, these folks sitting in circle at Camp Obama were invited to tell those same three stories about themselves to each other. So the story of self is, what is it that's hurting in me 
that brings me to this engagement? What, what is my heart connection with this political involvement? Not my ideological connection, uh, not my economic connection, not, not, not my external goals and objectives, but what are the pains of my heart and the hopes of my heart that bring me to this place? Secondly, the story of us. How does the story of self connect with the larger story of what's going on in the hearts of people in this society as I know them? And then thirdly, the story of now. What might be done in this moment that would help us heal the wounds and advance the hopes that are in the heart? So Camp Obama with this storytelling spread out in ever-growing concentric circles. And I've met a lot of folks who got involved uh, in later stages of the campaign who, who, whose involvement reflects their answers to those three questions, the high level of energy, the high level of external activity being animated and driven by this storytelling that all of which is stories of the heart. Right. Now, this, they, they weren't doing sociology. They weren't doing economics. They weren't doing political science. They were doing the same kind of storytelling that you find at the heart of all the great spiritual traditions. And why do you find it there? Because it's one of the most powerful things going on the face of the earth. So um, do you feel that we... That our that Western culture, um, U, U.S. culture, let's stick with, has gone through a kind of um, trajectory in in your lifetime. I mean, we I've spoken a lot over the years with people who recall how in the nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, you know, gr- the great intellectuals and sociologists of that time predicted that religion would. That religion and spirituality would retreat to the private sphere. I mean, even though you had a figure like Martin Luther King Jr., whose 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 spirituality, whose faith was front and center of his social action, that kind of got written out of history and the way we told mm-hmm. ourselves that story. And um, you know, as American culture grew more diverse than it had ever been before, um, an, an expression of tolerance was kind of compartmentalizing, leaving your um, your ethical values, your religious values, your spiritual sensibility, and kind of checking it at the door of common spaces like our places of work. Um, do, do you feel that what's happening now, and I mean, sort of what you described with the phenomenon of Barack Obama, um, is a political figure who seems to be bringing all these things back together, sort of modeling an integrity in a new way. That he's not a person who is compartmentalized. It is all part of his success. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that the realm of business, because I know you've worked with a lot of people um, in many kinds of places of work over the years, do you do you feel that what we're seeing now in terms of the economic meltdown is kind of the end of one phase? You know, is there is there some kind of evolution taking place where? This inner life um, also assumes a new place uh, in in our working lives. I, I believe that, um, but uh, but I believe that in the world of business, um, uh, what you can point to at the moment is not a large scale grassroots movement. You can rather 
point to the harbingers of a new awareness, Mm -hmm. kind of straws in the wind. Um, I would say that in academia, this awareness of the power of religion, the power of spirituality, the power of the inner life, um, has rather been forced upon people. Because if you're a historian these days, or a political scientist, or a sociologist, you really can't do much work without coming to terms with the, um, the, 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 the relevance and fundamental power of those factors in moving all of the systems uh, that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, I think, you know, academia is struggling to take off the blinders, which, again, were uh, a point at which um, uh, the Marxists had nothing on us. I mean, Marx said religion is the opiate of the people. He wrote it off in that way. Right. And our academic establishment has written it off in much the same way. Um, so in the in the business community, I think there is uh, a, a growing awareness that a lot of the, the literature that has had to do with business ethics and a lot of the um, education uh, in business schools that's had to do with ethics has been frosting on the cake. Uh, it's been that what I call the add-a-course phenomenon, so that at the in your last semester as a business major, you take an ethics course right. as if that would deflect you from all the deformative stuff that has gone before, which has basically taught you how to manipulate markets, um, how to manipulate language in advertising, how to appeal to people's baser instincts to sell a product, how, how in effect to cook the books and get away with it. Um, and then to add a course on ethics as if that would deflect the the amoral, at least amoral, and sometimes immoral trajectory of your previous training is patent nonsense. And I think there's a new awareness that um, that what what got us into this mess um, is is not only the lack of regulation of the lesser angels of our nature, okay. but <laughs> but the fact that we have those lesser angels and, and that they have enormous power. Uh, right. At the same time, if once you see that, you also start to see the possibility that the better angels of our nature that Abraham Lincoln talked about and tried to uh, invoke and evoke um, as the Civil War came to a close— um, that that those angels are real too, and that and that we have some very uh, fundamental groundwork to do in our culture about about uh, the notion that you can educate the heart as much as you can as as much as you can educate the mind. I, I have real hope that even in the hard nosed world of business education, that this lesson will start to sink in, and that a new generation of business people might be educated in a more integrated way, a way that takes the inner life as seriously as it takes the objective external world. And part of the reason for my hope in that regard is that um, there is at least one other very hard-nosed field where these lessons have already been taken to heart and and rather thoroughly implemented, and that's the world of medical education. Right, right. Uh, yeah. There's absolutely no question that 
that the best medical educators, and, and there are lots and lots of them mm-hmm. in this country, now understand that um, the human that spirit is a factor. The human <laughs> spirit is a factor, yes. exactly, mm-hmm. and that you don't that that a doctor mm-hmm. who who is heartless, who treats patients as objects or machines to be fixed and repaired, rather than as human beings. To, to, whose full spiritual, psychological, and mental powers need to be invoked in the healing process, mm-hmm. that, that such a doctor is not a real healer. Right. There's clinical evidence to that effect. Well, if it can happen in medicine, which is a notoriously hard-nosed, show-me-the-facts field, um, I believe it can happen in business as well. And, and at this point, uh, you know, we're at one of those interesting points in history that I've always been fascinated with, where self-interest and idealism converge. <laughs> right. <And laughs> so that's an interesting thought. Yeah, yeah because when, as you're saying a lot of this, I'm thinking of myself growing up in the... I was born in 1960, so growing up in the 19, late 60s, 70s. And my father, you know, when I would have idealistic notions, you know, he would say... You know, that's great, but you got to live in the real world, right? There was a real, there were my ideas and there were a lot of possibilities. And then there was the real world with a capital R and a capital W. And I think the examples you use, the, the point you're trying to drive home is that these kinds of insight about human emotion, about the role of, um, of the heart, which is, again, kind of a hard not to sound squishy, of the human spirit, have their very pragmatic, you know, essential kind of a place in the real world that can't be ignored or that we ignore to our detriment. Well, absolutely. They they help constitute, comprise, create, co-create what we fondly call reality, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, of course, is an ever-shifting, ever-morphing shape that that is co-created between what's inside us and what's outside us. I mean, you know, look at any event in everyday life and you can see how that happens. A teacher who approaches a class uh, with anger and resentment in his or her heart will create a class that's full of anger and resentment. A teacher who approaches a class with care, compassion, and commitment will help co-create something of the same. Um, we We are profoundly interactive creatures. We are communal creatures. And the the reality we co-create is what I like to call life on the Mobius strip, where the, <laughs> inner, the inner and the outer uh, are indistinguishable from one another. They keep merging into each other, the inner and the outer, and they keep co-creating each other. And and I do think that, that even though people don't have a, a language for this and you know, the folks that I talk to in the worlds of business and, and high finance, they wouldn't express it in these particular ways. But but they're very, very aware the best of them are um, in the same way that the best medical educators are, that they can no longer approach their work as simply the manipulation of the object world, that this moral, ethical, spiritual, mental, uh, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, inner, inner component um, is a critical element in, in the mix. Um, and, and it, you know, interestingly enough, it, it's been in some of the excesses of religion, 
uh, Islamic excesses, Christian excesses, mm-hmm. excesses everywhere you look, that are that are driven not by cognitive rationality or uh, by um, even um, material calculation of gain, but simply by passion, um, and how those forces have influenced our contemporary history. That has served as a as a wake-up call to our need to hold these things in a thoughtful, reflective, open, and public way. Mm. Okay, so um, you're saying we, we have to take them seriously um, also because we take those, that kind of excess seriously. Absolutely. If we're going to take the excess seriously, we have to take the underlying drivers seriously. Mm-hmm. Let, 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 me, let me give you my operating definition of spirituality. Okay. Um, spirituality for me is the eternal human yearning to be connected with something larger than my ego. Um, because if, you're, if all you're connected with is your ego, you, you live a, an isolated, lonely and eventually sort of self-annihilating life. Now, that's a neutral definition because what people get connected to out of that yearning can be for better or for worse. It can go to the better angels of our nature or the the evil angels of our nature. Mm -hmm. So the, the Third Reich is an example of people yearning for this larger connection and choosing the wrong thing. Right choosing blood, soil, and race, a murderous ideology. Um, But so also um, are the finest examples of of, uh, religious um, sacrifice on behalf of the common good, of religious altruism. Um, What makes the difference? Well, what makes the difference is discernment, and we need People can't do all their discerning inwardly. So part of part of the inner journey has to be communally shared. It has to be publicly examined and explored. That ought to be going on in our educational institutions, mm. for example, where where what's 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 under the surface in every student's life. These deep questions of meaning and purpose and connectivity. Um, this 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 deep yearning to get beyond the loneliness of the egocentric life can be explored and held respectfully in in ways that help people make good choices about that. Um, getting connected with with wealth and the devil take the hindmost turns out not to be a very good idea, um, and I, I think there is a growing awareness that we need to um, open these inner life issues to Hmm. interpersonal and public exploration. I think for the rest of our time, that's what I'd like to talk about is um, not not narrowly speaking the realm of business, but um, how this realm of spirituality, spiritual traditions, which you... You're, you're Quaker, but you, you speak about these things very broadly, and you, you're always in conversation with many different kinds of people. How this can be an edifying part of our individual and communal discernment in terms of what has happened to us economically and how we move forward from here. 
Um, and, you know, just in terms of community, you know, you've often used this word, the art of community. And I do think that that is one thing that our religious traditions, um, at their best, <laughs> you know, um, have cultivated across the centuries and, and bring us back to. I, I, I've also been, just for myself, as I watch this, these you know, these very frightening things unfold in the economy. I, I, I'm wondering, do, do we, do we all need to start preparing to help pick up the people around us who fall, who fall through? Because, you know, as much as you and I can have a beautiful conversation about the virtue that might come out of this, um, there is going to be such real suffering around us. Yeah, there already is. And there is, there? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there already is when <clears throat> when you realize how, how many American families are in default on their mortgages, how yes. many jobs are being lost, how many kids are not going to be going to college in the fall yeah. because the money isn't there. Um, you, you start to get a measure of the suffering that's already happened, and that's that's going to have downstream consequences for who knows how many years. It's going to be more than one or two. Um, and so absolutely, uh, it, it falls to um, to all of our communities, I think, our religious communities, our educational communities, our civic communities, to, you know, to finally take small steps towards measuring up to, to that, that great definition of a great society, that a society's greatness is not to be measured by how well the strongest in its midst can do, but by how well it takes care of the weakest in its midst. And and we have a lot of people who have now been weakened by forces beyond their control, sometimes by decisions, bad decisions of their own making, but those decisions were often um, uh, uh, made in, in the midst of, of smoke and mirrors that were created by powerful institutions and individuals in mm-hmm. our in our society, so there is a, there is this collective responsibility, and I you know I think that the model of to be concrete about this the model of Camp Obama is a good model. It's it's already proven that it has powerful results in the objective world, the hard-nosed world of political reality. Um, And yet its foundations seem very idealistic. Sit in a circle, tell the story of self and how that relates to the story of us and how all of that relates to the story of now. Well, in our our, uh, tough-minded culture, storytelling sounds like something that the brownies do around the campfire. Right. Um, not something that adults who want to make a difference in the world might do. But uh, storytelling does some powerful things for us. Um, it, it allows us to feel heard and seen, so often for the first time in our lives. Um, that allows us to connect with each other at the broken places as well as the strong places. That allows us to come together in forms of corporate power on which democracy has always depended. Um, and it, a revitalization of democracy is part of what Camp Obama uh, helped make happen. Uh, um, and, and so I, I think that there's a, a simple model there 
that can be adapted in 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 other settings to bring the subjective uh, the powerful subjective stuff of human life into these into the larger picture into the larger equation. Uh, if I translate that into the life of religious communities, um, I, I think one very simple meaning that it has is that a lot of our religious communities are going to have to make a big shift from an audience performer situation <laughs> in, which, in, in, in which the leaders do all the talking mm-hmm. and carefully craft the show each week uh, into a much more communal dialogue that is sustained by the faith commitments that these communities profess to have. I, I, I will be truthful with you and say I wonder sometimes about how much faith these some of our religious communities have in the transcendent powers that they testify to when they try to keep everything under the control of one or two people with power. Um, I think I think they don't walk the talk in that regard. But if they were to start walking the talk, I think we would have more circles of people telling the truth about their lives and and out of that truth um, creating more powerful forms of community that could have a healing effect in, in the larger world, including picking up those people in their midst um, whose whose lives are, are coming apart right now. Right, right. As a Quaker, the concept of nonviolence is important to you. And I wonder how you think about violence and nonviolence um, as a very kind of, you know, ordinary part of our economic life. And how, how, are, how is this concept of nonviolence coming to you in, in terms of thinking about where we've gotten to in our economy and, again, how we, how we move forward out of this? Well, as I've always said about myself, um, <clears throat> I, I can't claim to be a nonviolent person, but I, I have tried, I have for many years aspired to be that and try to keep holding myself to that norm uh, even when I, when I fail it. And it's, it's almost inevitable if, if one understands nonviolence um, at its, I think, more subtle levels, that 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 one fails it um, almost willy nilly. Now, what I learned early on from some great teachers uh, is that violence is is not just a matter of dropping a bomb on someone or shooting a bullet at them or hitting them in the face. Uh, violence is done whenever we violate the identity and integrity of the other. Violence is done when we demean, marginalize, dismiss somebody, as happens with racism or sexism or homophobia or any of the other ways we have of rendering other people irrelevant to our lives or even less than human. Um, Violence is done when we simply don't care or don't look hard enough to um, evoke our caring for another. So if you drive it to those levels of your life, and if you're me and you realize the comforts that, have, that come by virtue of my gender, my race, 
my economic status, my opportunities and advantages in life, um, you realize that at some level you're you're complicit in violence. And and so, for me, living a nonviolent life means, first of all, um, doing what's within my reach, so that every day, in every way, as in every relationship I have, I'm trying to ask the question, um, how. How is it that I am called to to honor the identity and integrity of this person, um, whether that's a person less powerful than I am or a person more powerful than I am? Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's as simple as um, as as being called to listen to this person's story, to take this person seriously to ask this person a question that evokes something of import from his or her life, um, knowing that that so many folks on the margins feel unseen and unheard. Um, sometimes it's, it's a more complicated matter of finding a student, as has happened, as happens to me from time to time, who can't take a next step in life because they don't have the $500 they need to uh, make that experience possible. And knowing that I do have $500 that I could live without and finding a way to make a gift that doesn't impose a burden on mm-hmm. that person. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it, it means getting a call uh, from someone at a time when you're tired and you don't think you have any more energy to talk, and saying, "Sure, come on over." I I hear your need to talk. I, mean, I just think there's a thousand different ways that we can practice nonviolence in in this fundamental sense of honoring the other's identity and and integrity, um, and and without having to be Rockefellers or. Fords or big-time philanthropists mm-hmm. uh, in in the world, mm-hmm. and and without having to have traditional political power. Now, I think another exciting thing about the election cycle we've just been through is that a lot of people who thought political power was um, a matter of of getting themselves elected to high office in Washington D.C have realized that there's political power to be had in knocking on doors in your own neighborhood right. and inviting people to, to to answer simple questions or tell simple stories like self, uh, us, and now. Um, I think that that if we want to keep this this movement going, this movement that has so energized and 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 brought hope to our society in a new way, then it's urgent that we keep working with each other to reframe politics um, as a very local act, as as simple acts of relationship building and community building that empower people because there's more power in coming together than there is in hiding out all alone. You know, the terms um, scarcity and abundance are also uh, words, concepts you've reflected on across the years. I think it's a good example also of how um, 
because I think these are more spiritual terms for, and they they kind of just it's a, a way in which language can take us out of our boxes of just talking about poverty and wealth. Mm-hmm. So reflect with me on how you're thinking about scarcity and abundance and how we imagine those things and how we live them as virtues for this time we're moving into now. Well, I I told you a little bit of the story of growing up in an affluent suburb with a father whose who's not only attitudes but behavior and, and way of forming my sisters and me was very countercultural to mm-hmm. that affluence. And one of the things that he gave me eyes to see, uh, even when I was young, was that just because you had a bank account full of money um, and a larder full of food didn't mean that you had abundance or, or experienced abundance. Because a lot of people in that community, I started to see at a young age, were running scared. They were running scared that as much as they had, they needed more. And beneath that was the fear that if their um, bank account ever emptied or their larder uh, ever ever ran out, um, there would be no one there for them. And they were right because mm-hmm. they weren't in that constant daily act of reweaving community of mutual aid, mutual knowing, mutual assistance, which which is itself the abundance that we seek. Mm. Uh, I think the story of human greed is very simple. It's the story that you can never have enough stuff. Once, once you go down the path of <clears throat> that stuff is where my meaning lies, um, you can have, never have enough of it. But what we're really looking for, I think, is the kind of abundance that comes from knowing that we are willing to feed one another, knowing that we are in those generative relationships where when you need my support, um, I'm there to offer it as best I can, and when I need yours, the same is true of you. Um, I, I do think that, that at the heart of of all of the great spiritual traditions um, is a theory of abundance that really has very little to do with material goods beyond the the, the rightful uh, necessities of life, food, shelter, clothing, uh, meaningful employment, um, that, that abundance is, again, uh, a quality of the human heart and it's a quality of relationships that that it comes when one can find uh, meaning in uh, in invisible things or subtle things uh, or things that come to us through through nature and through love mm-hmm. um, I, I think I think that that the meaning we're looking for um, is 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 something that gets generated both from within and in in relationships and and that and that that's what equals abundance for many of us now, i i think what's 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 important to see about our institutions um is that every institution um survives and and grows by convincing people that it controls a the uh, the scarce supply of a good that we all want to have um, let, let me go back to education, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, ed- education um, p- 
pretends, the educational institutions pretend, that um, what they credential as intelligence uh, is the only game in town. So if you can pass objective tests, if you can function verbally and uh, mathematically at reasonably high and testable levels, uh, you're, you're credentialed as being an intelligent person. But, but we know that, that that's only one form of intelligence. It's, it's the top inch and a half of the human self, as it were. Uh, we know that there are seven, eight, nine other kinds of identifiable intelligence. There's problem-solving intelligence. There's relational intelligence. There's visual intelligence, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and as people start to discover this abundance and give themselves and each other credit for it, um, a great liberation goes on, which then actually starts to create alternative institutions so that new forms of knowing come into play. Again, the example of medical schools, right. where emotional and even spiritual knowing um, uh, starts to be uh, part, uh, uh, an accepted, legitimate part of the educational equation. So th- I think that, that, um, that the spiritual traditions are constantly pointing towards those subtle realms of abundance, those subtle sources of abundance, which actually, um, you know, become more visible to us and, and more, in a way, more accessible to us out of necessity right. when material abundance starts to, to dwindle. Yes. Uh, um, yeah, who, you know, who, yeah. is, who is it that, how many people have you talked to, I've talked to a lot, who have uh-huh. visited um, so-called poverty-stricken or third-world or resource-deprived countries and said, I found so much abundance there in terms of community, of people helping each other than I find in our own country, that I've really had to rethink what abundance is all about. But no one wants to, you know, that's not a place... um and I think this is humanly understandable that we want to go. We don't want to be confronted with need. You know, I was thinking a minute ago when you you said that part of the definition of abundance is that we know that we will help others uh, when they are in need and they will help us when we are in need. But it, it's, you know, I, I think um, of the post-war years in which my parents grew up and I grew up um, the point was not to be needy, right? I mean, we right. we resist. We don't want that place, and and that that is understandable. I I think that one um, one thing I've come to appreciate very much about spiritual traditions having a role in human life, and therefore in our culture, is that they take mortality and uh, finitude and frailty seriously and assume that they will be there, that those things are part of life. And our culture, and I think our economy colluded in this for, not for everyone, but for many people in recent years, in this illusion that things could just get better and better, right? That you could be safe from need. Um, yeah. Yeah. Isn't isn't it amazing that, that <laughs> we... we we do have a tendency to buy into the illusion that if we can just keep making more money, we'll never die. Yeah. Um, it, it's 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 very odd the power of that of that illusion 
over our lives. I, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right that many of us, of, of, certainly of, of your age, of my age, grew up in a time when um, need was, you know, was not cool. To be avoided and, at all costs. <laughs> right. Yeah. Self-sufficiency. Right. Self-made was, man, the American ideal. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the model. That's, that's, that's where you need to be going with mm-hmm. life. But the, the truth of the matter is that underneath that patina of, of self-sufficiency, there has always been profound need. That's why we sell so many antidepressants and tranquilizers in this society mm. and other psychotropic drugs. Um, you know, that's why psychiatrists and therapists at $150 an hour still have flourishing businesses, and mm. they're probably doing better today than they were a year ago. Um, the, the, there is huge need underneath um, that that Even illusion affluence, yes. of self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. And what's, what's, what's marvelous about, about storytelling, if I may return to the Camp Obama mm-hmm. theme, the story of self, is that one of the reasons we don't tell our stories of personal need is we think we are unique in the universe with that need and that it's a sign of weakness mm-hmm. um, to, to have the need to say nothing of revealing the need. But when we start, when we sit in places where people are telling each other their stories, we start to realize that we are in a vast communion of souls, of needy souls, who, who, who somehow strengthen each other through the mutual knowledge of need, who somehow become more profoundly connected with each other through the mutual knowledge of need. No one in that storytelling circle has the answer for another person, but somehow we are an answer for each other in the solidarity that comes out of a shared need. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a Leonard Cohen song, a fairly recent vintage, that has a great lyric in it that actually simply updates in more contemporary musical terms um, what the spiritual traditions have said for a long time. Leonard, the lyric goes like this, Forget your perfect offering. Ring the bell that still can ring. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Mm. <laughs> so forget your perfect offering. Mm. Um, there's a crack in everything. And it's in those cracks that we connect with each other. It's in the brokenness that we connect with each other and that we generate very mysteriously the the abundance called hope that actually can 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 make us move our feet and move our hands and move our minds towards something better mm-hmm. in very practical terms and, and again the the recent campaign cannot be written off as um, one more exercise in top down marketing politics. Right. The, the very interesting thing about the, the work of Camp Obama and the, work, the theory behind it, as, as I said, attributed to Marshall Gans of Harvard, is that Gans, along with a lot of other people, um, in, uh, ha- has made the very simple case that if we are to restore our democracy, we have to, we have to return people from their captivity to being consumers. We have to free people from their captivity to being consumers 
and return them to their role as citizens. So here was the first campaign that I can remember where the effort was not to sell a candidate to me as if I were a consumer, Hmm. but it was instead an asking the asking of a question that I needed to answer. Who are you? Who are you in relation to the rest of us? And who are you in relation to this moment in history? And and not all of us got that question directly, immediately, pointedly, but somehow it was in those questions were in the wind. Right. And and we stopped being a whole lot of us stopped being consumers of political flim-flam of political manipulation. We rebelled against the advertising model, the manipulative model of um, pandering to our fears. And we instead rose to the asking of questions that turned us back into citizens, Hmm. not to buy something, but to say something. Hmm. That was the fundamental dynamic of of a campaign that has really changed the face of American politics. Um, I'm, you know, history moves through cycles. I'm not saying it'll last forever. And I'm not saying that we've achieved perfection or that Obama will get everything right. But I'm saying that that something, there has been a fundamental sea change, at least for a while, that has reminded a lot of us of the power of the human heart held in a disciplined and focused way, deployed in a disciplined and focused way to change the the lay and eventually the law of the land. It's happened before. It's happened with all the great social movements of history, Mm. and I think it's happening again. Mm. You know, you note that um, all Mm. the great spiritual traditions, that there's a core message in all the great spiritual traditions, and that is be not afraid wouldn't that be folly now not to be afraid? Um, I actually think it would be folly not to hear that message properly. Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, I think what the message says, and this, it's actually one, Krista, as you know, that I've thought about a lot yeah. <clears throat> because uh, <clears throat> one of the things my... <clears throat> Let's take your time. Get a little water here. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> be not afraid is is something I've thought about a lot in my life because one of the things my father uh, helped me understand is that um, I happen to be a person who uh, has a has a history of of being animated by by fear. Mm. Um, he used to say to me even when I was a teenager, um, from time to time, he would say, um, you're, you're, you're running afraid, aren't you, Park? And <laughs> I, would, that, uh, I was moving my legs fast because I was afraid of something. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't criticize me for that. He'd just mirror that back. When I first heard that, that, um, that biblical admonition, be not yeah. afraid, I, I really found it very condemning of me because I have fear in me. Um, I always have, and I suspect I always will. I know I always will. 
at age 70, you know certain things about yourself <laughs> that, you, that you can no longer okay. pretend that you can go to a workshop you and might change. might outgrow it. <laughs> <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> if you only read in the next book, uh. <laughs> listen to the next guru. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have that fear. When I listened more carefully to the words, be not afraid, um, I realized um, that, 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 that they didn't say you can't have fear. They say instead you don't need to be your fear. Um, and I think there's a big, big difference. That if you, if you learn your inner landscape well enough, you realize, yes, there's a piece of turf in there called fear. And you can choose to stand there if you want. But there are other places in that inner landscape where you can stand as well if you work at it. You can stand in a place of hope. You can stand in a place of fellow feeling. You can stand in a place of appreciation of beauty. Uh, You can stand in a place of uh, being aware of your own mortality. Uh, mindful of the simple fact that you are going to die, uh, which, as you cultivate it, um, uh, kind of relativizes a lot of other things, Mm. which, incidentally, is one of the things that surviving three bouts of serious clinical depression did for me. It Mm. relativized a lot of other things, Mm. like how scary can this be compared with living day after day thinking I needed to end my life mm-hmm. and coming out the other side awfully glad that I didn't. Um, you can choose wh- where you stand within yourself, if you know your inner landscape, where you stand as you move toward other people, the news of the day, the events of your own life, the, the situation of the moment. Those are actually choices that you can make. Um, They're not always easy, but they're impossible if you're not reflective about your own inner dynamics. Once you become reflective, there comes with that the possibility of making choices. And and then the next frontier is the courage to make good choices about that, Um, to move from a place in yourself and the way I like to say it to myself is to is to choose to move from a place in myself that is more likely to have life-giving results for me and other people than death-dealing results. Um, and I've, you know, you, there's no perfection in that. Mm-hmm. You you screw up, but you can also stand in a place of self-forgiveness, which is also somewhere in there, um, and. Uh, cut yourself some slack and try it again. Mm-hmm. Um, can we keep going a few minutes? Are we okay? All oh, right. absolutely. All right. I, I um, love talking with okay. you. Okay. Because you let me talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. You have a lot to say. Um, I, I'm going to listen in my, my headphones for a minute. There are a couple questions from behind the glass, and, and then I have one more question for you, and we'll let you sure. go. Okay.
I just, I don't think I'm, I think that's all way too much going back to ground we've covered before. Um, you, you told me when we spoke a couple of weeks ago that you had, you had this uh, retreat right as the economy started to falter. And there were people there who were uh, were leaders, were, were business leaders. Um, and, you know, part of the dialogue that, that's taken place in, in this immediate period is, is, is a blame game, right? And, and it's easy to fall into characterizing this as, you know, predators versus victims and the greedy leaders versus the innocent. Um, y- you said to me that... It had been very important and instructive for you um, that you saw the human dynamics of this crisis differently. And so I'm just curious about um, what you learned um, and how that changed your perspective, even as you thought about the ethical and moral and spiritual implications of this economic crisis. My perspective on these leaders and mm-hmm. their, their or work what, in the what world. you what you le- heard from them, what you learned from them that that shifted your perception, you know, as mm-hmm. you started to make sense of it for yourself. Well, I, I think that that I went into this retreat with leaders of big business and high finance, uh, with uh, with many of the typical suspicions uh, and uh, doubts uh, about these folks that come from leading a largely academic or intellectual life, the life of a public intellectual. Um, That was uh, mitigated somewhat by the fact that my own father was a successful businessman in Chicago, and Mm -hmm. I knew that, that an ethical business life was possible, and I'm grateful for that knowledge. Um, but uh, these people were operating at a higher level in the stratosphere than he was. And they came into that retreat, I thought, uh, very anxious, some of them, and uh, even on the edge of a, of a kind of uh, um, not clinical but um, just situational uh, existential depression yeah. as they were watching their world fall apart and surely thinking about the stockholders back home with whom they'd have to be dealing next week, or in the case of one person, um, the multi-million dollar uh, cuts that this person was going to have to make in their operation along with lots and lots of staff. Mm. These are heavy burdens on a thoughtful individual. And so I I saw this this, um, anxious, kind of defensive, closed-down, um, set of hearts really open um, to each other during the course of this weekend, partly because those of us who led the retreat, I think, had carefully crafted the circumstances in which that kind of opening is possible so that we turned it from a economic analysis, from a uh, social political discussion into an exploration of our own inner dynamics and into that which was closest at hand. I mean, the crucial thing to do in those settings is you don't talk about what's out there. You talk about what's in here because right. that's that's what it, what is accessible to you. That's what's in the room. That's what you can do something about. And I will read just very briefly um, a couple of lines from a, um, a journal that one of these leaders kept um, and gave me permission to, to, to publish in the article that you mentioned uh, earlier. 
this person says, arriving at the retreat, my heart was agitated. As I leave, it is still. Arriving at the retreat, I was blaming. As I leave, I am accepting responsibility. Arriving at the retreat, I was angry. As I leave, I have a sense of peace. Arriving at the retreat, I was focused on my own distress. As I leave, I am seeing beyond myself again. Arriving at the retreat, I was running from my pain. As I leave, I am allowing it to live in me. Arriving at the retreat, my angst was palpable. As I leave, I have hope about the present and the future. Now, I just want to say that that I don't know what this person will go ahead and do ethically. But I recognize in those words the foundations for ethical action, Hmm. which are the foundations, for example, of a stilled heart or the foundations of no longer blaming but accepting responsibility. Hmm. And you know what's interesting about the the economic um, ecology or any ecology of our lives is that there's always someone to blame, no matter what place you occupy in the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. How, can, how can that be, you think, of a CEO who's making several million dollars a year? Well, in this current crisis, such a person can blame his or her stockholders mm-hmm. who kept demanding results and refused to settle for the truth that the results today could not of their investment could not possibly be the same as they were 25 years ago because that sort of growth was simply not in the cards. There's always someone to blame. And then the stockholders are going to blame the board and the board, round and round it goes. So this, what, what I've just read to you gives me hope because in the short period of about three days, um, people carrying huge burdens, given circumstances that allowed the heart to show up, the soul to show up, that allowed that shy soul, shy even in the most powerful and well-to-do people in our society, to come out and speak a word of truth. And when that word of truth takes us back to the ground of our own being, back to our own responsibility, uh, back to our own culpability, back to our own possibility of doing something life-giving rather than death-dealing to help co-create a better reality, then I think we've taken at least a baby step um, towards what, what, what we all want, which is a society that works well for everyone. Um, uh, and, and we've made a contribution to it. Hmm. Anything else, anything that's really been on your mind about this that I haven't asked you? Well, um, <clears throat> hard to hard to think of me. I just want you to know that if you and your family ever have me over for dinner, I won't talk this much. I'll, really... <laughs> I'll expect you to talk. Well, uh, all right. Well, listen, that's a point. You should call me if you're ever in the Twin Cities because I would love to have you over to dinner with my family. <laughs> I'd love to meet your family someday, <laughs> so we'll try to work on that. And I'll, right. I'll be a I'll be a decent guest. I, believe I know it. you. <laughs> well, it's great to talk to you. Um, we will um, figure out what we're going to do with this, and we'll keep you informed all along the way. 
And, sure, uh, I know it's part of a larger work, and yeah. it'll shift and change as yeah. time goes on. But, but you'll, I, I've, yeah, but you'll uh, be on top of it, and I'm glad that we're. This is just one conversation among many we're going to have coming up. I look forward to, <laughs> okay. to learning more about it, and thanks a lot for this, Krista. All Take right. care, Thank and you. hi to Kate. All right, mm-hmm. I'll tell her. Okay, bye bye. Mm, thanks, bye.